What do you do? What do you do when you're frustrated? Where do you go with your frustrations? Where do you go with your complaints? Maybe you're the type of person that likes to scream into a pillow if you're frustrated, or maybe you like to punch a wall, hopefully not too often. Uh, maybe you like to complain to your friends and your family, and, and of course, nowadays, we have lots of ways to complain because we can go online on, and we can use our apps and we can, we can complain about anything. If you ever have a bad meal, all you have to do is open a Yelp account and you can give a bad review to a restaurant and you can complain that way. There's lots of things that we do with our complaints and with our frustrations. Uh, just recently, I was in traffic and I, I, I may have cut someone off. I, I felt like I didn't cut them off, but I definitely pulled in front of them, um, and uh, I was trying to get, you know, you're trying to get to your exit, and you got to make a quick little maneuver. I thought it was a pretty good move. I kept, you know, I accelerated into it. I wasn't one of those people that pulls over and then, like, stops in front of you. I, I accelerated in, but the guy behind me was frustrated, to say the least, and I couldn't hear what he was saying, but I could read his lips a little bit and, uh, and, his, and his sign language, and uh, I, I knew what he was doing with his frustrations in that moment. So what do you do with your frustrations and your complaints? And what do you do when you're frustrated with God? What do you do when you have a complaint with God? As we continue our series in the Minor Prophets, this morning we're actually in my favorite of all of the Minor Prophets, Habakkuk. And one of the things I love about Habakkuk is that he's different from the other prophets in that uh, what we really get is we get to listen in on a conversation between Habakkuk and God. And he's complaining. And he has frustrations. And now Habakkuk was a prophet who lived at a time when the nation of Israel had been divided into the northern tribes and the southern tribes, the northern kingdom made of ten tribes and the southern kingdom made of two tribes. And when Habakkuk lived and ministered, Israel, the northern kingdom, had already been defeated by the nation of Syria and dragged off into exile, really never to be seen again. Now, Judah still existed. The tribes of Judah and Benjamin still existed, but they were in a bad situation. They were in moral decay, spiritual decay, social decay, and spiritual decay. And into this world, Assyria is the rising power, but soon Babylon is going to rise up, and they're going to actually defeat Assyria. And Babylon eventually is going to defeat, they're going to invade, conquer Judah, and drag them off into exile. And this is the world that Habakkuk lives in, and this book is a conversation between Habakkuk and God. And in chapter one, it starts this way. Habakkuk or Habakkuk, I may go back and forth because I'm not really sure how to say his name, but he yells out to God, God, would you do something? He has a complaint. He has a frustration. If God had a complaint box, Habakkuk would have filled it out and dropped it in his complaint box. And he said, God, would you do something? And he essentially asked God two questions. And maybe you've asked God these questions before. Question number one, how long? You don't have to raise your hand, but have you ever asked God, how long? How long will I deal with this situation? How long will I deal with this sickness? How long until I see the answer to this prayer? How long? And what Habakkuk is saying here is, how long, God, are, am I going to cry out and you're not going to do anything about what I'm crying out about? How long am I going to cry out to you about the violence and you won't do anything? And I think what Habakkuk is saying here is, is God, if you'll just tell me how long, then I can endure. You know, when you know how long something's going to last, it helps you get through it doesn't it? Our youngest daughter, Madeline, has cerebral palsy, and one of the things that we have to do with her regularly because of the tightness of her muscles is we have to stretch her, and she hates stretching because her muscles are really, really taut, but we have to stretch her calves and stretch her hamstrings and, and stretch her quads, and one of the things that her therapist has taught her as a coping mechanism is to count. 
you know, because she doesn't like it. So her therapist said, well, count to 10, and when you get to 10, we'll be done stretching. And so we do this at home, too. I'll say, Maddie, it's time to stretch, and I'll start to stretch out her little hamstring, and she'll start to count. One, two, three, four. Now, the, the more intense the stretch is, the faster she counts. <laughs> One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, right? And so I have to kind of pace her in her counting. If we know how long something is, then we have a better shot at enduring it. And that's what Habakkuk is saying here is, how long, God, do we have to endure? And then the other question he had, which is the universal question, which is the biggest question that anybody ever asks, is the three-letter question, why? Why? Why do you make me see iniquity? Why is there no justice? Why don't you stop the wicked? Why don't you do something about them? You know, you ever had this experience where you're driving in traffic and some dangerous driver goes flying by you 20, 30 miles over the speed limit? What do you immediately pray for? Immediately your car turns into a prayer meeting and you start praying, God, let there be a police officer (laughs) just a mile down the road. Just, just as a blessing to this person who just blow, blew by me on the right. We kind of have that is, God, would you do something? So Habakkuk is saying, would you do something? How long? Why? And God answers him. Isn't this cool? God answers him. And God says, okay, all right, I hear you, Habakkuk. I'll do something. And he says in chapter one, what I'm going to do, you're never going to believe. And what he's really saying is this, Habakkuk, what I'm going to do, you don't even want to know. You don't want to know what I'm about to do. And he says, I'm going to raise up the Chaldeans, which were the Babylonians. And here's what we know about the Babylonians from chapter one. They were notorious for their cruelty. They had a disregard for God. They had a disregard for human life. They had a powerful military that was building and growing. That was, they, they're, 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 their horses were seen so fast that they compared them to like leopards and jaguars. And they trusted in themselves and they didn't trust in God. And so God says to Habakkuk, I heard what you're saying. Yes, the people of Judah are wicked. Yes, something needs to be done. I'm gonna raise up the Babylonians and they're gonna destroy you. And now Habakkuk's like, whoa, hold on. This reminds me of like when we go to the doctor's office and we're like, hey, doc, can you help me be healthier, lose some weight? And the doctor says to you, absolutely. Here's what you gotta do. You gotta eat less. You gotta exercise more. And if you're like me, I, you say something like this. No, but not that. Like, <laughs> something else. Give me, give me a different way. And, and Habakkuk says to God, do something. And God says, okay, I'll do something. And now Habakkuk says back to God, do something else. Not that. And it's funny because he sort of like, he tries to like negotiate with God. He kind of sweet talks him. Oh, God, you're eternal. You live forever. You're not going to do that. Surely you're not going to use the Babylonians to destroy us. They're more wicked than us. Haven't you been keeping score, God? Yes, we're not very good, but they're way more wicked than us. You won't do this. You're too pure. This is, what, this is what Habakkuk is saying to God. You're too pure. You're too good. You're not going to let them get away with this. And here's what he's wrestling with. This is not the God I thought I knew. This is not the God I thought I was serving. This God does not do what I thought he would do. Now, how many of you, again, without raising your hand, you've ever been there? And you felt like, this is not what I thought I was getting into when I started serving God. This is different than I expected. So Habakkuk says to God, do something. God says, I will. Habakkuk says, please, not that. Something else. And then let's read chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. After Habakkuk makes his first complaint to God, God tells him what he's going to do. Now Habakkuk makes his second complaint to God based on what God said he was going to do. Now look at what he says in verse 1. He says, I will take my stand at my watch post and station myself on the tower, and I will look out to see what he will say to me. He's like, I'm going to stand here. I'm going to wait for God to come and answer my complaints. 
and what his answer will be concerning my complaint. In verse two, the Lord answers him and says this, Habakkuk, write the vision and make it plain on tablets so, that he, so he may run who reads it. Here's what he's saying. I, I don't want you to miss this. I don't want you to misunderstand this. Get it clear, write it down so it's not forgotten. Make it clear so everybody can understand it and get ready to run with this because this, this needs to be heard. And then in verse three, he says this, I love this. He says, for still the vision awaits its appointed time. You know, every vision, every prophecy, every dream that God's given you, it has an appointed time. Just because you haven't seen it yet doesn't mean you won't see it. It has an appointed time. And he says, it hastens to the end, it will not lie. And some of you need to hear the second half of this verse to encourage your heart this morning for promises that you're waiting to see come true. It, if it seems slow, wait for it. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. And here's the key verse in the entire book of Habakkuk, verse 4, chapter 2. Behold, his soul is puffed up. He's talking about the Babylonians and the Chaldeans and those who don't serve God. Behold, his soul is puffed up, and it is not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by faith. But the righteous shall live by faith. There's two things we learn from Habakkuk about faith, two things we need to learn this morning. And the first one is this, faith is for when you can't see what God is doing. Faith is for when you cannot see what God is doing. Habakkuk can't make sense of God's reply. It seems out of step with reality. Because first off, at this time in history, Babylon actually wasn't nearly as powerful as they became. This was a little bit early. Babylon was not the fearsome enemy that they became. Assyria still had the most power, even though they were starting to lose it. And so, you know, Habakkuk is going, Babylon's going to conquer us. I know they're wicked and I know they're evil. You wouldn't use them. But also he's going, they're not that powerful yet. So it's out of step with reality. It's also out of step with what he thinks to be God's character. God, you're not going to use the wicked to destroy the less wicked. That's not how you work. But it's also out of step with Habakkuk's hopes and dreams. He's saying, God, I want you to change us. I want you to do something about us. I want you to make us not so sinful. Because the real issue in Judah at this time was two things, two big I words, idolatry and injustice. I want you to make us true worshipers of you and those who treat others the way that they should. But I don't want you to destroy us. And he can't see what God's doing. Earlier this week, I was meeting with a leader in our church, and this leader said to me, if you have the facts, you don't need the faith. If you have facts, you don't need faith. And she was right. If you can see, you don't need faith. But when you can't see, have you been there? When you can't see what God is doing, that's when we need faith. Let me give you some examples. When the paycheck's coming every week and the money's there, you don't need faith. It's coming. But what happens when you get laid off? All of a sudden, you need a lot of faith. When your family is healthy and everybody's in good health, but then somebody gets, you don't need faith when you see health. But then when someone gets a diagnosis, then all of a sudden you need faith. When your children serve and love God and follow God, maybe you don't need the faith. But all of a sudden you realize how much you need faith when your family is falling apart. And there's other things, our government, our country, our nation, our world, right? We look around and there's times when things seem comfortable. When it looks good, we don't need faith. But when we can't see what God is doing, we need faith. Faith is for when you can't see what God is doing. When I was in college, I did an eight-week um, internship in Queens, New York City. And um, about a month in, I needed to get a haircut. My hair, 
here's a list of, on a list of things you don't need to know about me, my hair grows super fast. And, uh, and so I got to get my hair cut almost every single month. And uh, I, I had to get my hair cut. And I didn't know where to go. So I'm walking around Queens and I see a barbershop. And I walk in and it looks legit. And so I sit down and I say, can I get a haircut? And the guy's like, yeah, yeah, sit down. I forget what ethnicity he was, but he, he didn't speak English very well. And so he sits down. And normally when you get a haircut, they have a conversation with you first, right? What kind of haircut do you want? Like, that's a pretty normal question when you go to get your haircut. Not this guy. <laughs> Normally, when you get a haircut, they use one pair of scissors or one clipper. Not this guy. <laughs> Two pairs of scissors, one in each hand. <laughs> Normally, when you get a haircut, they stop and start from beginning to end. Not this guy. He cut my hair from beginning to end with never stopping with two pairs of scissors in both hands. I don't think I breathed the whole time. <laughs> I was praying for my ears and for my throat, and he just like, just like going, like Edward Scissor's hand, just like cutting my hair, and I, I think for most of it, I closed my eyes. I was like so afraid. I couldn't see what he was doing. I had to have faith, but when he was done, I opened my eyes, and to this day, it's one of the best haircuts I've ever gotten in my life, and I realized this is all this guy knows how to do, but he's amazing at it, cutting hair. He's been doing it his whole life. I couldn't see what he was doing, I had to have faith. But there's something else I learned when I think back to the story. Just because I couldn't see what he was doing doesn't mean he couldn't see what he was doing. He knew exactly what he was doing. And just because you and I can't see what God is doing sometimes, it doesn't mean that God doesn't see and know what he is doing. My girls are into this show right now on Netflix called Catching Monsters. You ever heard of this show, Catching Monsters? It's, it's, not, it's not as scary as it maybe sounds. It's, it's a fishing show. And they go out and they fish, and they go after big fish in the ocean. And, and one of the fish they go after is the bluefin tuna. The bluefin tuna can be up to 15 feet long and weigh 1,500 pounds. That's a lot of sushi. That's a lot of, that's a lot of spicy tuna rolls. And that, that, that tuna is worth, worth $10,000 if you can catch it and sell it. And so they, they, they go and they fish for these, these huge tunas, mostly up in the waters up near Canada. But these guys aren't actually trying to catch the tuna to sell. They're trying to catch the tuna to tag. And what they do is they, they catch them and then they tag them and then they tag them. It's a way that they can study them. And after a couple months, the tag naturally releases off the fish and it surfaces and then they use satellite. It's just amazing what they do. But I was watching them bring in this bluefish, uh, this, this, this tuna, and it, the fight is amazing because these tuners are powerful and they're huge and they're, they're, they're trying to break the, the, the reel and they're pulling them in and the boat has to keep moving because if the boat doesn't keep moving, the tuna will, will swim under the boat and it will cut off uh, the line underneath on the rotors or on the engine or something. And so they finally get this tuna, this massive tuna to the side of the boat. They got to like lasso it. They like lasso the front. It takes like three of them. They pull it up. They grab it by its gills. They're holding it there and then they shoot this tag into it, and then they release it. And I thought, like, from the tuner's perspective, like, this is not a good day. <laughs> this is not, these people are not acting for his good, right? Like, they're, they're first, they're getting a hook, in, they're first, they're promising him a meal. I think that's the, you know, someone who loves a meal as much as anybody, that's one of the cruel things about fishing, I think, is that you get them promising him a meal. Like, if I was a fish, I'd be dead immediately, because everywhere there's a free meal, I'd be like, that's, that's for me. And so, you promise him a meal, and then you, you pull them up, you, 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 so they got a hook in their mouth, then you lasso them, and then you pull them up to the side of the boat, and then they're all grabbing them, so they're out of their natural environment, and then they, and the tuna's got to be thinking, these people are the worst, 
Well, of course, what the tuna doesn't know from its limited perspective is they're actually trying to help the tunas. Because through the study and through the tag, they learn how to better understand the tuna, but also they learn how to limit how many tuna can be caught every year. They learn how to care for tuna, how to provide for them, so it's something good for them, but the tuna doesn't know. Now, I know that we would like to think that the gap between our understanding and God's understanding is smaller than the gap between a tuna's understanding and a human's understanding, but it's not. God's understanding, he, his ways are so much higher. His thoughts are so much higher. God is all-knowing. He's overall. He sees all. And he knows exactly what he's doing. And we're so finite. And our perspective is so small. And our preferences are so small. And just like a human couldn't explain to a tuna, oh, don't worry about this, Mr. Tuna. This is for your good. We're actually doing this to help you and help your buddies. In the same way, God could not always explain to us. I know we'd like to think that we can understand, but if God is all-knowing, and here we are, we can't even figure out plots to movies sometimes. Like, we're, we're not going to be able to understand. But he, God is working for our good. And even when we can't see, and because we can't see, faith, listen to this about faith. Faith is not about getting my way. Faith is about trusting his way, right? Faith is not about, in some circles of Christianity, faith is about getting your way. God is a pinata. Faith is a stick. And if you have enough faith and you beat God with your faith enough, eventually he'll crack open and give you what you want. But faith is not about getting your way. Faith is about trusting his way. Some people say, well, if you have enough faith, you'll never struggle. You'll never suffer. But look at the scriptures in the New Testament. There's a man named Paul who is a tremendous man of faith who wrote two-thirds of the New Testament. Did he suffer? Did he struggle? Tremendously. Second Corinthians chapter 11, he's writing a letter to his friends at a church in Corinth, and he gives a whole list of how he suffered. Listen to this. I'm not even going to give them to you all. Five times he was beaten he was lashed 39 times. Five different times the Jewish leaders took him and whipped him 39 times. Three different times he was beaten with rods. One time he had stones thrown at him. They tried to kill him by stoning him. Three times he was shipwrecked. Three times. I don't know about you, but if I was traveling with Paul, I, I would not travel with him anymore. I'd be like, Paul, you take this ship. I'll take the next one. Three times he was shipwrecked. He says, I've been in danger from the Jews and the Gentiles. I've faced danger in the cities, the deserts, the sea. I've been hungry and thirsty. I've gone without food. That's terrible. And I have shivered in the cold without enough clothing to keep me warm. Here's Paul, and he's listing these things. And you can look at Paul and say, well, Paul, where's your faith? If you just had more faith, maybe those ships wouldn't have wrecked. If you just had more faith, maybe you wouldn't get beaten. If you just got more faith, maybe you wouldn't be sick. Maybe you wouldn't be cold. Maybe you wouldn't go hungry. But faith is not about getting our way. It's about trusting God's way. It's an even when you can't see type faith. It's the faith of the Hebrew boys in the Old Testament who said, our God can deliver us from this furnace. But even if he doesn't, we will not bow our knee to you. That sort of faith. Now this means that there will be times you can't see and you don't understand. And faith is learning to trust when you don't fully understand. Pastor Mark Driscoll said it this way. He said, faith isn't knowing. It's knowing the one who knows. Isn't that good? Faith isn't knowing. We don't always know, but it's knowing the one who knows. See, so much, in, so much of our lives, we want answers when God wants a relationship. We want God to explain to us what he's doing. He just wants us to trust him and to walk with him. You might say, yeah, but, but, but Romans eight twenty eight, right? Isn't God working all things out? For my good, yeah. But what's the definition of good? You and God might have very different definitions of what your good looks like. For us, our good might be comfort, convenience, the easy life. 
Do you know what God's good is for you? His ultimate good for you is this, that you would be conformed to the image of his son. That's what he's most concerned. He's not as concerned about your comfort and your convenience as he is concerned about your character, who you are, who you're becoming, the call on your life. One of the things we learn from the book of Habakkuk and really studying the people of Israel in the Old Testament is sometimes God risks our affection to bring us to our destiny. Sometimes God is willing to do things that make us wonder, is he as good as he thinks he is, just so he can bring us where he needs us, so that he can use us for his glory and for our good. And so the central theme, really, of Habakkuk is that God is sovereign. He reigns and he rules, and we can't always see what he's doing, so we need faith. We need faith for when we can't see what God is doing. Second thing that we learn in this uh, book about faith is this. Not only do you need faith for when you can't see what God is doing, we need faith. Faith is for when you feel weak in what you are doing. Faith is for when you feel weak in what you are doing. Habakkuk is struggling. He was struggling when the conversation started, and after the conversation continues, he's struggling even more. Habakkuk is a man of God, but he doesn't have a lot of strength at this point in his life. He's not coming to God from a place of strength. He's coming from a place of weakness. If you can read his words and understand his heart, he feels defeated, he feels overrun, and he feels outnumbered. Have you ever felt that way? Defeated, overrun, and outnumbered. He's not strong, he's not impressive, he's weak. But faith is for when you feel weak in what you're doing. How many of you are glad that the Christian faith is not for the strong, it's for the weak? It's not for those who got all their stuff together, it's for those who are willing to admit that they don't have all their stuff together. And they have to place their faith and trust in something other than themselves. Verse four said that the righteous shall live by faith, but the wicked, their souls are puffed up. What does that mean, that their souls are puffed up? It means they trust in themselves. They hope in themselves. But the righteous don't trust in their own strengths. The righteous do not boast in their own strengths. The righteous are not impressed with themselves. They know they are not strong. They know they are weak. And like Paul, they boast in their weaknesses and they boast in Christ and they live by faith. So what do we do when we are weak? Well, in the rest of chapter two, God goes on to assure Habakkuk, Babylon's not gonna get away with this, by the way. And he proclaims five woes on Babylon. We're not gonna read the text, but five woes, and these are them real quick. Number one, woe to the person who amasses what is not his. Basically, who builds a fortune that shouldn't belong to him. Woe to the one who dishonestly makes wealth, who cheats other people and takes advantage of the poor. Woe to him who builds a city with bloodshed, the people who use violence to advance their kingdoms. Woe to him who gives his neighbor drink. This is kind of a weird one, but essentially when I study what it means is it's, it's, it's woe to him who, who entices other people into your way of pleasure so that you can take advantage of them or so that you can uh, exploit them. And verse five, or sorry, the fifth one is this. Woe to him, and this one's a little weird. Woe to him who says to, who says to wood, wake up. Woe to him who says to wood, wake up. What is Habakkuk? talking about here? What is God saying? Well, in Habakkuk chapter 2, it'll be on the screen for you, they're talking about idols because idols were things that they made out of wood and out of stone. And they believed that these idols had real power. Look at verse 18 of Habakkuk chapter 2. It says, what profit is an idol when its maker has shaped it? A metal image or teacher of lies. See, Habakkuk is saying, our God shapes us and makes us, but you have to shape and make your idols. Its maker trusts in his own creation when he makes speechless idols. Verse 19, Woe to him who says to a wooden thing, wake up, or to a silent stone, arise. Can it teach? Behold, it is overlaid with gold and silver, and there's no breath 
at all in it, but the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. What do we do when we're weak? Because we're weak, here's what we do. We look to other things for strength, don't we? All of us are like this. Because we know we're not enough, because we struggle with feelings of insufficiency, inadequacy, we look to other things, hoping that they'll give us strength. And we place our hope in those things. Maybe it's our appearance, maybe it's a relationship, maybe it's a job. We look to these things. And these things are what are called, according to the Bible, idols. Faith in the wrong things won't work, no matter how strong your faith is. And when you feel weak, and, and, and there's gonna be times in the Christian faith where you're gonna feel weak, you're gonna struggle, you're gonna feel like, I don't have a desire to pray. I don't have a desire to read scripture. I don't have a desire to be at church. I don't wanna serve God, I wanna serve myself. Let's be honest, we all are gonna be there at times. What do you do when you feel weak? Well, you better pay very close attention as to where you're putting your trust and where you're placing your hope. And when you feel weak, where do you look for strength? Where do you look? Some people look at their career and they say to their career, wake up, arise, rescue me, save me. Some people look to power, wake up, arise, wake up, pleasure, arise, approval, security, significance, accomplishment. We look to all these things that can't wake up. They're not alive. They're dead. They have no power. They can't speak to us. They can't free us. They can't heal us. They can't deliver us. They can't save us. And we, in our weakness, we place our faith in the wrong things. But in Jesus, we have one who never fails us. We place our faith in Jesus, and he never fails. And faith that works is faith that is in Jesus Christ alone, and not faith in other things. You can't place your faith in the government. I don't have to convince you of that, probably. You, don't have to, you can't place your faith in family. You can't place your ultimate faith in your health. You can't place your ultimate faith in your status, in your standing, in who people think you are. You can't place your ultimate faith. The only faith that works is when you place your faith in Jesus Christ alone. And that's what it means for the righteous to live by faith. Everybody either dies by their faith or they live by their faith. And the righteous live by faith because they've placed their faith in Jesus and everybody else will die by their faith because they've placed their faith in the wrong things. And that little phrase in Habakkuk chapter two, verse four, the righteous will live by faith, it's quoted three times in the New Testament, twice by Paul, once by the author of Hebrews. Paul, who grew up a very religious man, Pharisee of Pharisees, he kept all the rules to try to be righteous. Jesus interrupted his life he realized, my righteousness isn't enough. Look at what Paul wrote in Romans chapter 1, verse 16 and 17. He says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. I'm not ashamed of the crucified Jesus. I'm not ashamed of my weakness. I'm not ashamed that I need a savior. I'm not ashamed that I don't have it in myself. I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Now look at verse 17. He quotes from Habakkuk. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. I love that. It's revealed from faith for faith. For as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Here's what I want you to hear this morning. Faith is for when you feel weak in what you're doing. Some of you, every week you wonder if God loves you, if you've done enough if he hopefully didn't notice that mistake, if he's grading on a curve. You know what you're doing when that's your hard attitude? First off, you're enslaving and exhausting yourself. But secondly, you know who you're placing your faith in? 
yourself. But the righteous shall live by faith and faith in Christ alone. And here's what we learn. This is such a powerful truth from Habakkuk. We are not saved by the strength of our faith. We are saved by the object of our faith. Let me say it again. It'll change your life. We are not saved by the strength of our faith because we're weak, but we're saved by the object of our faith. What does that mean? It means the weakest faith in Jesus is so much better than the strongest faith in anything else. The most, the mustard seed faith, the smallest amount of faith that you can mustard, if it's in Jesus, if he's the object of your faith, then it's so much more valuable. It has the power to save you. There are people in this world who have stronger faith in what they believe in than what some of us in this room believe in. But it, almost, it doesn't matter. Why? Because it's not the strength of you. Now, now, by the way, as you grow in Christ, your faith grows too, right? You're not, your faith will grow and you will have stronger faith, but it's not the strength of your faith that saves you. It's the object of your faith. Saving faith means I receive his work and I reject my work. I don't hope in my work and I hope in his because we need faith when we feel weak in what we are doing. In the very end of Habakkuk, chapter three, I encourage you this week to read the whole book. It's only three chapters. It'll take you 10 minutes. He comes to a place of acceptance and trust and chapter three is really a psalm. And it ends with some of my favorite verses in the Old Testament. Habakkuk says this in verse 17. Listen to his faith. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit beyond the vines, if the produce of the olive fail and the fields yield no food, what's he describing? He's describing drought, starvation, no provision. He says, if the fig trees of Israel never blossom again, if there's no fruit, if there's no produce, if the flock be cut off from the fold and there's no herd in the stalls, there's no vegetables, there's no meat, there's no food. Verse 18, he says, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. Verse 19, God the Lord is my strength and he makes my feet like the deer. He makes me tread on the high places. And that's how the book ends. And Habakkuk is a story of moving from frustration to faith. Frustration to faith. And some of you this morning, you're in a place where the Holy Spirit wants to move you in some degree from frustration to faith. From hoping in yourself or hoping in your circumstances or hoping in the world to hoping fully and solely in Jesus Christ. And what does Habakkuk say here at the end and then we'll pray? He says, when I can't see what you're doing, the fig trees don't blossom. The olive harvest doesn't come in. The crops, the flocks, they're nowhere to be seen. When I can't see what you're doing, I'll rejoice in you. You're enough. I'll trust you. I'll follow you. I'll look to you. And when I feel weak, he says, you'll give me feet like the deer. Now, what does that mean? Two things. Deer are perfectly created to get to places that you and I can't get. You ever go to the zoo? and see some of those animals, some of those deer up high on the mountains. The mountain, you know, up, they're, they're up there and they're walking around and they look steady. You and I wouldn't be. And here's what he's saying. You're gonna give me the feet like deer. Two things it means. Number one, you're gonna help me rise to heights that I can't rise on my own. But secondly, in dangerous places, you're gonna give me steady steps. Steady steps. That when others are struggling and falling all around me because they don't have faith, I'll be steady. I'll be able to walk through drought, I'll be able to walk through grief. I'll be able to walk through loss. I'll be able to walk through sorrow. I'll be able to walk through struggle. 
because my faith is in the one who sustains me and strengthens me and is near me. Let's pray together this morning.